Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Here in New York, I'm pleased to say that Carl Weinberg joins us now, High Frequency Economics Chief Economist. Good morning to you, Carl. Good morning, John. So help us get a read on the global economy when there is such a big debate right now as to what is happening. Your thoughts, Carl? Well, there's not really a debate. Uh, the U.S., the Fed is watching, but the U.S. economy is doing quite well, thank you. The employment number on Friday was, as you called it, a freaky number and probably doesn't tell us what's really going on in the labor market. It's not corroborated by other information. So interest rates are appropriate as the Fed chairman said on television last night, and and the U.S. is doing okay. Um, In Europe, it's not so okay, and Mario Draghi told us last week that the ECB views the outlook for Europe as being a lot worse than they thought even a few months ago, and I think that's accurate. The industrial production number from Germany this morning certainly confirmed that story. In Japan, not so good, but then again, it's never so good in Japan as you'd expect in an economy where the population is going down. In England, well, you have the status accent for the comment on the UK economy, but until you can tell me how Brexit's going to work out, I can only expect the worst well, for the Well, don't UK let the economy. accent fool you, Carl, because I've got no idea either. <laughs> I think where there is a big debate is China, and you've been much more optimistic than most who have spoken to us. Why? Well, you know, first of all, China's been growing at about 6.5% for four years now, and it's it's slowing down very, very, very gradually, but it's been within a range that has been pretty steady. And we look at the stimulus that's come into China just in the last few months, the fiscal stimulus, the cut in the value-added tax rates, the monetary stimulus, the cut in the bank reserves ratio, and we see that starting to appear now in the monetary data. I think the policy mix is being set appropriate for an economy that wants to grow faster. And cyclically, China's been in a slowdown now for seven years. It's time for a cyclical recovery. The excesses that caused the economy to slow have been purged, I should think, by now. And I'm looking forward to 2019 being actually a better year than 2018 for China. How different is the growth scale we're going through at the moment with China compared to early 2016? Well, you know, do you have a growth scare? Because I don't have a growth scare. Many people do, Carl. Most people look at the data (laughs) and conclude there is a bit of a growth scare in China at the moment. But again, we're looking at steady right now in terms of GDP. We're looking at uh, industrial production numbers probably looking a little bit stronger right now. Retail sales looking a little bit stronger. And most importantly, aggregate lending to the economy has started to chirp up in the last few months. And to me, that's a really positive sign. The reforms have pretty much done their thing by now. So 6.6% is the operative number. Where are you heading on China? Well, you know, there's a demographic dividend out there that uh, by itself should probably bring GDP growth to about 5% or thereabouts. So they just start at 5 Yeah, just with, just for bringing people from the farm into the city, moving 25 million people a year into an urban population of about 600 uh, million persons. So that's their starting point, and then the rest is up to productivity. And what we're seeing right now is a huge publicly subsidized, to be fair, effort to make China and the world's leading industrial power. Made in China 2025 is an enormous program. It's so much more important than short-term trade issues. And this is the key to productivity growth. This is the key to moving the next step up the ladder in terms of development, in terms of being uh, a higher level of manufacturing than just assembly. Uh, So everything hinges on that. So made in China 2025, you say, is much more important than short-term trade issues. But 
they are a part of these short-term trade issues for the United States of America. How is this a feature still in the trade negotiations, Carl? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, that the, the U.S.-China trade spat and its impact on China, I think, is overstated uh, by a lot of people, and also on the United States as well. I mean, the United States is only about 15% of the world economy right now, and China has lots of people it can sell stuff to. If the U.S. wants to tariff their goods, well, there's the whole rest of the world to sell things to. So uh, I don't think that, that the, the trade spat is directly behind China's slow economic growth. I think it's, it's more secular and cyclical rather than induced by the current trade spat. I mentioned with Nick Lardy earlier today, the Brookings study, which is a fabulous paper put out by Brookings, suggesting the actual growth, particularly the industrial growth, may be mismeasured and may be lower. But the, the major issue of that debate is whether we have a hard landing. You and I were younger when we first started talking about a hard landing in China. How do you define a hard landing? And are we anywhere near that? Well, I think rather than as being on a hard landing or an approached landing, I think of China's economy as being at turbulent flight at altitude. And I think that that's typical of emerging economies. And we want to remember that China is very much an emerging economy. It's not an advanced economy. So uh, I think that this kind of bumpiness, short-term ups and downs, that's what we should expect. And I think maybe part of the issue in the markets is that we're being looked at, China's being looked at and studied by people who aren't used to looking at emerging markets. But it's a much bumpier ride. With this Carl Weinberg, bank analyst with high-frequency economics, I would love to know with your encyclopedic knowledge of Europe and the bailouts of Greece and all that, how does an economist like you think the banking system of the EU will clear? How do they get to where they need to be? Well, they need more capital and or they need relief from capital adequacy requirements. And we look at the bank lending figures for Europe and Mario Draghi finally admitted in his press conference last week that bank lending had slowed in the latest figures. It's actually been flat at about two and a half percent in aggregate. And that's not enough to accommodate the kind of GDP growth that Europe wants to see, which is about four and a half percent in nominal terms. So banks have to start lending more and it's not for a shortage of reserves. It's got to all be about an inadequacy of capital to support new lending. So we need relief on the policy side and we need new capital. But but if Deutsche Bank, you know, I I don't need you to do the sell side act here, but if Deutsche Bank merges or whatever, by definition, it's got to be a cash call on somebody. Well, that's the answer is a cash call is going to be on the government. Well, uh, that's certainly true. Deutsche is a troubled institution, but I think that Deutsche's troubles are more company-specific than they are industry-specific. I mean, certainly they're made worse by what's happening in the global environment, and certainly a bank that can raise money from the market at negative interest rates doesn't have to write a lot of Mm -hmm. loans in order to be able to make a profit. It It can write very few loans. The macroeconomic problem, I think, is separate from the problem of the specific institution of Deutsche Bank. Okay, Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. Bank analyst. Thanks, Carl. Chief Economist, High Frequency Economics. Thank Mm you um, so much. This is without question the interview of the day on China. Nicholas Lardy is with the Peterson Institute. He's one has been one of the great jewels of analysis of China within our international relations, and we're thrilled that he visits us in New York. Uh, today, you have a new book out, uh, and, and they're always highly readable. They're 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 concise. They're really on top of the topic. The state strikes back the end of economic reform in China. We've heard this from others. How is President Xi striking back uh, 
against the Chinese people? Well, he's clamping down on non-governmental organizations. He's increasing the role of the party. He's There's more and more social control. So it's a full-court press to expand the role of the party. Is capitalism done in China, or can there be a new amended capitalism? I think that's an open question. Uh, the end of economic reform in China in the book title has a question mark at the end. So I do leave it open. I think you could go back to more market-oriented reform. Uh, maybe not under Xi Jinping, but possibly under somebody in the future. Nick, we've had more and more guests come on this program, on radio and on TV for that matter, and say that President Xi is increasingly under pressure. Is he? And if he is, what's changed? Well, I think he is under some pressure, although it's very, very difficult to measure from the outside. Uh, I think he's under pressure because of his effort to change the Constitution to allow him to stay in office uh, indefinitely. He's under some pressure from academics who don't like the increased control on their, you know, what books they can use in their classes. Uh, he's under pressure, pushback from some of the minorities uh, that are being uh, suppressed in China, particularly the Muslims. So there are some sources of opposition. Very difficult to judge, however, uh, how serious they are in the aggregate. Difficult to judge how serious they are and difficult, of course, even more so to judge whether it changes strategy of the president. What is your read on that? I don't think he's going to change strategy uh, until the growth slows down further. I think the state-oriented development that they've been pursuing has led to slower and slower growth. And at some point, he's going to recognize that the ability of the party to stay in power is going to be undermined because it has stayed in power primarily by improving living standards, rising wages, improvements in the social safety net. And as growth slows down... Uh, the ability to deliver on those fronts is undermined. The degree to which growth has slowed down is something of debate still on this program almost every single morning, seemingly, Nick. Your read on the rebalancing act of the Chinese economy and to what degree we have slowed down at the moment, what is it? Well, there has been a lot of rebalancing. Consumption is now the major source of growth in the economy. It's no longer exports uh, and investment. Uh, In the year just ended, uh, about three-quarters of all the growth was driven by increases in consumption. So the structure of demand has changed, and of course, the growth has slowed down. I think the slowdown is primarily because resources have been allocated uh, inefficiently. About 40% of all state companies are losing money, and none of them, almost none of them go out of business. They just borrow more money from the banks and, and right. carry on. So what's the best practice for the United States of America right now within the I found it amazing today how Carl Weinberg and you are sort of, you look at the whole trade debate as tangential to what's really going on in China. What's the best practice for this administration? Well, I think the best practice is to have more concrete objectives. For example, instead of this theological argument about technology transfer, they ought to require the Chinese to get rid of joint venture requirements in those domains where they are still in effect. If you can operate as a wholly owned uh, a foreign firm in China, then you don't have to transfer your technology to a foreign partner. So we ought to, we ought to be asking for things that are very concrete, and that also. So just say stop the JVs. This is the yeah. End. Well, about seventy-five percent of all the investment going into China now is in the form of wholly foreign-owned. That's a huge change over the last twenty-five years, but there's still a big chunk left where you have to have a JV. And that's where the technology transfer. Happens. That's where a great deal of it occurs. If right. you don't have to have a JV, then you can tell if a company can take whatever steps it wants to preserve its mm-hmm. technology, the same thing they might do in well, India or Brazil 
or any right. other emerging very, market. Very quickly, how do you respond to the uproar over Huawei? Uh, very complicated. I happen to think it's a, a very good company. It's a private company. Uh, obviously, the state supports it in this current uh, crisis. Uh, but they have a tremendous record of research and development, developing new products, and uh, controlling costs. I still think they're likely to be the dominant supplier of the infrastructure for 5G globally. Uh, we are out of time. Nick Lardy, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. And of course, look for uh, his new book uh, as well. The State Strikes Back, The End of Economic Reform in China. Question mark. That from Nick Lardy of the Peterson uh, Institute. Let's turn to Boeing and try to have a, a a direct conversation about where we stand after these two plane crashes. Chris Bryant with us. He and our David Fickling are more than informed on uh, what happened with Lion a number of months ago and now with Ethiopian Airlines. I do want to point out our guy Johnson mentioning forcefully this morning that Ethiopian Airlines is a first-class effort from what Guy has learned over the years. Chris Bryant in Berlin. Chris, what do we know right now? Well, the latest uh, this morning is that um, the black box has been recovered from the crash site. So I'm hopeful and I think it's very important that we get information as soon as possible about what exactly caused this, this plane to crash. There were, there were obvious similarities between what happened in Ethiopia over the weekend and uh, what happened uh, to a Lion Air jet in, in Indonesia last year. Both uh, uh, the same type of Boeing aircraft crashed soon after takeoff, after the pilot called in to say he had to return to base. But of course, there are so many un unanswered questions here, and, and this makes me a little bit uncomfortable because, you know, there's obviously uh, the market is indicating that, that this is a very serious problem for Boeing. The shares down about 8% this morning. But we still don't know if, if in fact, uh, a Boeing design flaw contributed to this um, uh, latest accident or, or something else entirely. So, Chris, it's far too early to draw any conclusions with any conviction whatsoever as to what caused the crash of the Ethiopian Airlines story over the weekend, but let's talk about the tragic incident of Lion Air. What did we learn from that incident, and what did Boeing do subsequently? Well, um, there was a lot of very good reporting from the New York Times, from Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal uh, in the wake of uh, 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 that crash that highlighted the uh, the new software that's on this um, aircraft, and it it's related uh, to the new engines that the uh, the Boeing 737 Max have. These engines are very uh, fuel efficient. They help the plane to fly longer distances, and, and that's made the uh, the aircraft a very uh, strong selling uh, prospect for the company. Uh, but um, they also potentially introduce um, some extra instability, uh, and uh, as a result, this aircraft apparently has um, software on board that essentially uh, can adjust the nose of the aircraft um, if uh, the sensors indicate that that's uh, necessary. In the case of the Lion Air jet, it may be that uh, the, the nose of the aircraft was forced down by essentially an erroneous um, uh, data uh, arriving into the system, and that kept happening, and, and the pilot eventually lost control. Now, um, it's very easy, therefore, to sort of come up with a theory, oh, that Boeing software is to blame, but Boeing uh, said in the wake of... Uh, that crash, that pilots should know uh, if they are getting some kind of um, automated nose-down uh, uh, call from from the aircraft, how to they should know how to disable that. And therefore, you know, one shouldn't again jump to conclusions that this software was somehow to blame. There were yeah. lots of conflicting comments from pilots. Did we know about it? Did we not know about it? Should we know more about it? I think in the wake of that, 
uh, accident, there was a feeling, well, yes, of course, uh, the more information pilots have, uh, uh, the better. And there was a feeling, too, that Boeing would, uh, in, in due course, perhaps, um, you know, have some kind of software update uh, to that system. Or My understanding is that hasn't happened yet. Uh, and as I said, it, it remains to be seen whether that had anything to do at all with the crash over the weekend. Well, the knee-jerk reaction is just to ask a very basic question, Chris, whether it's system failure or human error. And Chris, from the story you're telling, it's very difficult to answer those questions still for Lion Air because there's something unique about the software to the 737 MAX, which leads to human error. That's a story that some people are pushing, Chris. Would that be the right approach to all of this? Well, uh, you know, the investigation in Indonesia is ongoing. There were some preliminary filings there that highlighted, um, you know, some of the safety aspects of that airline um, combined with the, uh, you know, the new software on the aircraft. In the case of the Lion Air uh, incident, that, that the aircraft had had, uh, you know, maintenance problems in, in previous days, but had carried on flying. Uh, that wasn't the case, as far as I understand, in, in Ethiopia. So differences uh, there. So, yeah. um, you know, what we really need here is facts, and facts as quickly as possible. That can obviously be very, very difficult in the wake of a, a crash. Uh, but hopefully now with uh, Boeing's um, investigators on the way there, with the FAA monitoring this closely, uh, you know, there's utmost pressure from every conceivable stakeholder here uh, for answers a as soon as possible. Because, of course, you have passengers who are asking themselves this morning, well, is it safe for me to fly on this aircraft? And, you know, it's a very difficult question to answer because the fact is that y this sort of thing does not happen uh, in uh, global aviation. I mean, you don't have... Uh, the, the crash of a brand new aircraft type in the space of five months. I certainly can't remember um, something like that happening. And so, yeah. of course, people are answering questions and, so they, Chris, and they need answers. let's ask another question. Let's ask two. The importance of the 737 MAX to Boeing and the very real prospect of a blanket global grounding of the 737. Well, the 737 MAX is absolutely vital to, to Boeing's fortunes. I mean, the, as I said, it's um, the new version of... Um, you know, the workhorse of, of Boeing's fleet uh, it has about 5,000 orders, which fill Boeing's production through uh, right. 2023. Um, huge source of profit and, and cash flow. Yeah. And it's a big reason why Boeing shares were, um, you know, until this morning, uh, near record high. Uh, you know, Boeing uh, probably indicated down about 8%, 9% this morning, which would wipe about 20 billion off its market capitalization. But that gives you an indication of quite how high Boeing's market cap has, has risen uh, in, in recent right. uh, years uh, on hopes uh, that this plane well, was going to deliver. Chris, what I find fascinating here before we let you go is, is you know, John Astro's written on this in the air current. And as you mentioned, the Times Journal, uh, Bloomberg, everyone's on top of this because all of our listeners fly. The bottom line is this is supposed to be a hyper-efficient uh, airline package where the engines moved forward from the wing X number of inches, feet, whatever it is. And am I right to say there's a lot of new technology off that decision that the 737 MAX is not just an amended 737, but it's really a whole new airplane, isn't it? Well, yes and no. I mean, <clears throat> there's obviously a lot of commonalities between the plane and the original 737. I think what's what's new, of course, are the engines and then potentially some of the software uh, that relates to those. Yeah. Uh, very clearly, you know, this was an aircraft all about uh, improving fuel efficiency, improving, uh, you know, the, 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 the performance for the, for the customer uh, to meet, you know, the competitive threat of, of Airbus's A320neo. Uh, both these aircraft have thousands of orders. Uh, and... Um, 
you know, so yes, it's a, a, a new type of aircraft in that in that sense, but not like, for example, the Boeing 787, which was a clean sheet production, which you know Boeing spent billions and billions upon. The very the purpose right. of this this development was to keep costs down, uh, to not um, you know spend billions on a on a high risk new project, yeah. but keep it as much as possible from the previous project. Chris Bryan, thank you. We look forward to uh, your next writing on this. John Farrell, there's the betting in England on football. What's the betting right now that Man U or Arsenal catch Tottenham? Oh, don't like know. That's a sophisticated I seen question. The odds. That's quite interesting. Like the tots are the, fading, The race right? for the top four and the yeah. Spurs are fading. Yeah. Well, there's the odds there in betting on English football. Believe it or not, there are odds on a China tariff deal. Henrietta Trace joins us doing economic research for VEDA. We're thrilled that she could join us this morning from uh, New Orleans. Uh, just explain your China tariffs odds tracker right now. If you were having a, a, a good cup of coffee with the president at Mar-a-Lago, Henrietta, what would your odds tracker tell the president right now? Odds tracker would tell the president that the street very much wants to see the tariffs come off. As you know, we've got $250 billion some odd tariffs on Chinese imports. And um, the administration hasn't taken any tariffs off of any nations at all since Trump took office in 2017. So the stock market is wildly right. optimistic, I'd say, with like 60 to 70 percent of investors we speak with expecting for the tariffs to come off whenever President Trump and President Xi have their signing ceremony. But folks in D.C. <clears throat> trade circles and those familiar with the talks indicate that at a minimum or at, rather at best, we'd probably see a little portion, a small piece of the tariffs come off. Right. Um, not nearly the overarching basket that the street's looking for. What I love about your research at VEDA is you use the word enforcement. John Farrell, my colleague, has mentioned this time after time after time. Is there any indication of enforcement with any kind of face-saving agreement? There's a couple things that USTR Lifehizer, the main negotiator here, uh, who walks us through a couple of ideas. Um, anything is going to be over a specific time horizon. That's mandatory, and I think, I think the street overlooks that quite a bit. Um, enforcement, the way it's shaping up right now, is going to have sort of a three-tiered structure where once a month the low-level trade negotiators get together, hash out any issues that the business community might have, and try to come up with a solution. And then... Uh, Two months after that, they'll have the second highest trade ministers get together and see whether there's been any progress. And then every six months on a go-forward basis, likely for you know at least the duration of President Trump's term, USTR Lifehizer and his counterpart in China, Liu He, are going to get together and see whether or not there's been any progress made on any IP theft issues or enforcement mechanisms um, or sort of force technology transfer mechanisms, and if there has not been suitable progress made, they will slap more tariffs on China. Henrietta, will this be a two-way enforcement mechanism or a one-way? Right now, the U.S. is looking exclusively for a one-way mechanism, and China is essentially throwing President Trump's words right back in his face and saying, hey, we want fair and reciprocal trade. That means that if you guys do something to us, we want to be able to do something back to you. Are they going to get that? I sincerely doubt it. Isn't that going to hold up the whole thing? Uh, I would argue that it has held up the whole thing. We've been here for a year now. We were supposed to get a deal back in December. Then we were supposed yeah. to get a deal in January. And now here we are all in okay. mid-March. You're like a breath of fresh air on a Monday morning, Henry and Tris. Can, <laughs> can you provide in English what John Farrow and I should look for in the next 10 days on our vaunted trade negotiations? You know what I want to see really is some trial balloons. 
I want to see the administration in China throw out some ideas. Yeah. Um, what I see historically is that when you've got a deal that's really percolating, you start to throw ideas out so you can sort of um, provide yeah, yeah, parameters. Yeah. Um, so six years, three years, two years for um, any kind of uh, joint venture, ownership yeah. requirement levels, things like that. Just just rough numbers. Right. Uh, how many tons of soybeans are you going to buy? Give me a rough estimate. You know, uh, that's and, what and I you're not, see. to be clear, you're not seeing that right now. Correct, which is why okay. uh, we said last week, you know, it doesn't look like they're going to make this Mar-a-Lago meeting in right. late March. Well, we look forward, John and I, to our next road trip to New Orleans to meeting with you in the French Quarter and doing Hey, a, come on down. Re, re, I would love to. We should, you know. That would be a lot of fun. Was that, that was great. I mean, Henrietta Trey's the charm of her, folks, is it's just absolute straight talk on Beltway, like the blather. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.